1: A feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. What can you say about Randy Newberg? Not much. Randy Newberg, if you didn't know who he is, is a person who hunts on the Sportsman's Channel or Outdoor Channel I don't know which uh, channel he's on, but he specifically hunts public land and being self-guided. That is his ethos. That's why he got into the space that he's in. But he has a day job. He's a certified public accountant. And the whole hunting industry, hunting community, hunting show space, he's there because he wanted to change perceptions around how people hunted essentially, and so this conversation specifically is me almost getting a state of hunting from Randy. Uh, um, have you been affected by COVID yet?
2: Uh, I had it really bad a year ago, December of 2020. Uh, I got, I, I was pretty much bedridden for a month. Uh, Jeez. yeah, I had eight months of continued, they call it long hauler on the mm-hmm. back of my phone here. You see, I have this Cardia device. Mm. My cardiologist was so worried about my irregular heartbeat that he gave me that device and it'll take an EKG from your phone. Wow! So when I'd have these weird fluctuations, it would then text it to him and he texts me what are you doing right now (laughs) but he told me i thought he said i think someone in your fitness will probably work through this so uh between him and then the the pulmonologist they did the pulmonology uh, oxygen transfer tests in may so that would have been five months later as the equivalent of someone who smoked 10 to 20 cigarettes a day wow yeah and you clearly do not smoke 10 to 20 i've never smoked in my life but uh You know, a good hard season in the mountains of just forcing yourself and pushing yourself, they were right. I I feel like I got through it. And uh, given the, if you want to call it fear or whatever, I don't know, uh, I did get a booster shot and both vaccinations. I just, Mm -hmm. man, if if I got it again that bad a second time, I'm not sure Mm -hmm. I'd make it through.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got COVID just before Christmas, double vaxxed and boosted. But No, it was just a head cold. The worst part about it is, I'm such an extrovert. I was stuck in this room that you see me in right now, and my wife and my kids would put a mask on. The masks were hanging on the door on the outside of the door of this room. They would put their mask on, they would open the door, they'd slide a plate of food into the room, and then close the door.
2: Oh, Ravi, you, you'll get a kick out of this. I, I thought I was, I wondered if, if I was gonna make it through. My wife. For two days, she couldn't taste or smell anything, and that was the extent of it for her. She tested positive. I gave, so I, I gave it to her. Obviously, she gets up in the morning, cuss, not cussing, She doesn't cuss, but cursing the, the fact that she couldn't taste her coffee, and so that's the only, wow. only thing she it's so had. So weird
1: how it hits people differently, right? It's just yeah. so weird. Yeah, my, well, uh, hmm. my littlest one actually tested positive for COVID this morning.
2: Oh man!
1: Eight-year-old, that. and uh, he just Facetimed with his my my mother, his grandmother in Australia, and he explained to her my news. I've got news. I'm I tested positive. They stuck the thing up my nose bubble, and I tested positive for COVID. And she's like, "Oh, okay. So you have a cold, right?" And He goes, "No, I have COVID."
2: <laughs> oh gosh well, i'm i hope that your whole family is gets through it without thank a big you man. i think then it'll be I'm fun glad to see you're you're your upright and,
1: yes sir so. well i appreciate you reaching out man um yeah. i wanted to have you on for quite some time and uh saw you lost your attack Yep, and uh you didn't know who i was uh, you just knew that you just knew the voice, which is great. Yep. That's exactly what I want. <laughs> I want people to just not know who the heck this guy is. And unfortunately, <laughs> I've had to show my face a little bit uh, nowadays. Um. But uh, you you heard my voice, um, yep. and uh, yeah, we needed to connect, and we need to do more stuff together, man. I think we we have similar mindsets about this thing that we love so much.
2: I, I think we do, Robbie, and I, I I love that you push a lot of the discussion. Uh, the way you do, I think there's a lot of people who are afraid of discussion and afraid of talking about this stuff. And it's so dear to me that I, I don't shy away from any of that discussion. For me, the concept of hunting, what we get from it, what we think of it, the more we push ourselves, the more we challenge our own behaviors, our own ways of thinking, the better off hunting will be. And that's bigger than any of us. So uh, I, I embrace these, these discussions, even at times, you know, you look in the mirror and you're like, dang, <laughs> you know, I might, I might have to correct some things I've done here. And, and that's, that's <laughs> discomforting at times, but it's also growth. Mm-hmm. So. Definitely. Well, before
1: we go any further, Randy, why don't you introduce yourself to those who may not know who you are?
2: Well, I'll do that, Robbie. I'm Randy Newberg. Uh, I live in Bozeman, Montana, and uh, I produce a lot of media platforms. I've been involved in volunteerism and conservation uh, advocacy in the hunting space for over 30 years, and uh, I always tell my wife, what a country. I'm the luckiest guy on the planet, and I wake up every morning to prove it. Uh, I'm I just, I I really feel that the way, when I say that, Robbie, that I live in a country where I, the opportunities that were afforded me, I, I grew up in a little logging town, uh, lived in a trailer house, single mom, three kids, I'm the oldest. And if you would have told me that I would have grown up in the amazing world I did, with the opportunities, with the blessings I've been able to receive through some mm-hmm. good luck, some hard work. Uh, I, if you would have given me a, a, a whiteboard and a marker and said, what do you want your adult life to be like? I couldn't have dreamed it. And uh, I, I joke when I, people think I'm joking when I say, what a country, but mm-hmm. I do feel that way. I, I, I have can't. you hunted
1: outside the country? Have you been outside of America?
2: Uh, the only places I've, I've been to Mexico, but not hunting and I have hunted in Canada, I, I've never went overseas. I think your
1: perspective would be amplified if you came to say South Africa, not to hunt, but almost had this, um, indoctrination to how I was raised in yeah. which I was raised with, there wasn't any hunting available, eight and a half million people. and. There are no public lands and you cannot just have a rifle you have all these things that you have to go through and if you did have a rifle you could only get ammunition for that specific rifle wow. um so to be able to walk on a piece of private ground with a with a mm-hmm. loaded weapon and to be able to walk on a piece of public ground that essentially is mine even though uh, you know as you and my yours and mine as american citizens but when you when you think about it it actually belongs to the world because random Joe Blow from Australia can come to Montana and he can walk on public ground. He can hunt on public ground. So essentially the public ground is, it belongs to the citizens of the U.S., but it belongs to the citizens of the world.
2: I've never thought of it that way until you just said that, Robbie. But you're right. It it is. And Shane Mahoney, uh, if you... No, Shane, he often says
1: intellectually daunting individual. I actually met him three days ago. I met him again for a couple of times. I'm sure he knows who I am. But I said to him, I introduced him. I said, look, this guy, he is intellectually daunting.
2: Yeah, uh, he, uh, he and I talk a lot, and he said he, he, he kind of said what, what you just mentioned. He spends a lot of time other, on other continents, and he said that maybe one of the greatest gifts the United States ever gave the world was the concept of public land. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I until Shane said that, and you just said what you did both times, I'm like, why didn't I think of it that way? But I think uh, as, as someone who's lived it, who has grown up with it, we have a tendency to take things for granted. Uh, and uh, I grew well, up in
1: You don't think it's going to happen to you, right? Just right. because
2: that's yeah. what it's always been like. Yeah. I grew up in a hunting culture in this little town of 500 people. Everybody hunted. Every mentor I knew hunted. Every school teacher, hardware store owner, you name it, they all hunted. And when my parents got divorced when I was 10, my dad moved off for a while. And that's right at the age when I thought I was going to get to hunt. And I still remember the fear, fear I had that, oh no, my dream of being a hunter may have just disappeared, but I had public land out my back door where I could get off the school bus or walk home from school, go grab my 20 gauge, walk along the river and shoot rough grouse and rabbits. And that was public land. And that allowed me to become a hunter. And that's... Th- that doesn't happen everywhere in the world.
1: No, it does not. It does not, and that's why, that's why I take blood origin so seriously, Randy. Is that, you know, people question, and this is probably a good segue into some of the things that we want to discuss. People question my ethos. They question mm. why I'm doing what I'm doing. Oh yeah, because of the fact that the hunting industry, the model, I don't know for for. I understand why it's built this way, but the model is ego-driven. The model is I I I I I versus we 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 we. Yeah. Um, so it it's it, you know it's difficult for me to. You just have to keep doing by you know your actions to say okay, don't believe me, don't believe me. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing every single day. <laughs> One day, hopefully, yeah. I can convince you that I'm doing this for the reasons I'm telling you. I'm going to do it for.
2: Yeah, I I can relate a hundred percent to what you're saying, Robbie. I a lot of people question why I do what I do, and it goes back you to you this. You said to thing. me,
1: you said to me that you are not someone who re- relies on hunting and what you do, your media, mm-hmm. as a career, right? No.
2: No, not at all. And that was a deal I made with my wife. I'm a tax accountant, or as I tell people, I get to disinherit the federal treasury for a living. And uh, when you're a CPA, you know, you get most of your work done from 1st of December till the middle of April. And then you try not to get in trouble the rest of the year. But I, I've been, like I said, I've been blessed. I've owned some businesses. I've, you know, investments, rental properties, stuff like that have turned out great for me. And like some people may work to get to a point in their life where they want to go to Florida and sit on the beach. They do it because that's what they want to do. Or maybe they want to, you know, retire at 65 and go live near the grandkids. They've worked to get to that point and they go do because that's what they want to do. And I, in another aspect of that, I'm blessed. I've worked to get to this point in my life to do what I want to do. And that's what I want to do. Whether mm-hmm. I make money at it or lose money at it, it's not going to impact the motivations of why I do it because it, 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 it has no, no financial impact to me though. The only thing it would do is I wouldn't have a couple camera guys following me around in the woods. I, okay. I might have a little more time to myself out in the woods, but I, I've so hunted- why
1: did you do it then, Randy? Why did you decide to have cameramen follow you around the woods? Let's take the old leaf out of Matt Rinella's book, which is, you know, hunting, the commercialization of hunting has led to the destruction of hunting. Yet right. here's Randy Newberg saying, I love to hunt, but you made the decision to have cameramen follow you in that endeavor.
2: Yeah. And so I usually don't talk about this much, Robbie, but uh, since I've started this, I've I'm still probably $300,000 in the hole and I've worked 14 years with no paycheck. And I get that question all the time. What, what, why, what, 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 what's the motivation? And the motivation partly goes back to growing up. I, I realize how much hunting has added to my life. My life is so much more full. My relationships with my family, my friends, my community are defined by the fact that I'm a hunter my business card says Randy Newberg comma hunter. It doesn't say Randy Newberg comma CPA. That's who I am. That's my identity. And when I started all of this, I'd spent 13 years on the board of directors of a national hunting organization that focuses on the hunter behavior. And that, the person who started that, Jim Posowitz, founded the Hunters Institute. And one day he commented, he said, you know, Randy, the, the anti-hunters did not have to come about because along came Outdoor TV. And mm. I would have wow. to say there's a lot of truth to what he said. And I grew frustrated with how I was seeing the image of hunting be defined and created and crafted by a small handful of non-hunting people who were the programming directors at networks and the editors at magazines. And I'm not saying that the editors at magazines were bad people. It's just that they were accountable to a different master than I wanted hunting to be accountable for. And the, the barriers to entry to hunting messaging up until just seven or eight years ago with digital platforms was extremely high. You had to be like me, where you were foolish enough to go talk to a couple of your friends and say, Hey, what do you say we start this company? You know, I'll let you, you guys want to, I always said you wanted to be a minority investor in something I did and da da da. And the first year to produce a season of content was $300,000. Right. And then you pay $150,000 to the network for airtime.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You got to front all that money. Well, mm-hmm. that creates an extremely high hurdle or or barrier to entry for just to be to to provide a different vision or message of hunting Mm -hmm. and we had sports of field field and stream outdoor life peterson's hunting you know a small handful of magazines and there's some great people at those magazines but you got to see what their view of the world was driven by well Let's face it, they sell advertisement in magazine pages. Right. So all those barriers to entry were very, very high. And I didn't like the image that hunting was being cast to. So I went. <laughs> I spent a summer analyzing every TV show that was out there on all the networks. There was not one single TV show that focused on self-guided hunting or public land hunting. Even though in the West, 70% of hunters, when I went through all the data, used primarily public land mm-hmm. for their hunting. And that 90% of hunters in the West hunted without guides. So I looked at it and said, why and now it makes sense to me why the image of hunting is being portrayed a certain way, but yet me and all my friends and people I talk to say, Why why is TV that way? Um, I did not like the fact that hunting on TV had zero emphasis on food. Food is how I came to hunting. I I mean, don't get me wrong. I hunt for the adventure, the intrigue, the, Mm -hmm. the self-fulfillment of, you know, I took this food myself, you know, Mm -hmm. there's all these other intangibles, but at its core for me still today, hunting is about food. And I was very frustrated to see how easy it was for the folks who disagreed with hunting to take the images being presented and say, well, look, they don't even eat the stuff. Oh, it's just this. It's just that. And so I I tried to do it from the outside, tried to do it through the nonprofit world for many years. And finally, I said, all right, you know, am I going to be frustrated and and just, you know, scream and yell about it or I'm going to do something about it? So me and uh, uh, five other people who were, they were all CPA clients. They said, Randy, if you're going to do something, well, yeah, at least let us be a little bit involved. I said, all right, but it better be money. You you don't ever care if you lose it because there's a right. really good chance you're going to lose it. And uh, so that's. That's what got me started. I, When we first started, it was about accessible land. The first year, because I knew a lot of people haunted on private land. So I thought, okay, as long as there's not trespass fees and all this other stuff. Right. And after the first season aired, it became very obvious to us that the idea of public land was really resonating with people. And that's was kind of my gig anyhow and all my mm-hmm. conservation and volunteer work. So after about the second year, we did it. Pretty much, we just stuck with, all right, public land and and off we go. And, and at, the other thing that was pushing me at the time is there was a big effort underway in 2000 through 2015, probably, to dispose of the public lands of the United States. Mm. And as someone who spends a lot of time in Washington, D.C., unfortunately, on these issues, but also on tax issues, I became very concerned about that. And when you would talk to these other big media platforms that should have been super concerned about it because 70% of hunters are using these lands to hunt, they didn't care. Right. I'm like, what, what what is hunting in America going to be like if we lose these public lands? And I'm not, yeah, I'm not saying I'm the reason why, but that's what drove me.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: we, we, we just build our content around those type of things of advocacy. And (laughs) you may have built a business plan for, for blood origins. Uh, I built one for what we started was called on your own adventures as an accountant kills about four trees to make a business plan. Uh, (laughs) And a scientist. O- a scientist kills no trees because he has not a
1: single business bone <laughs> in his body.
2: Well, the only page that is still relevant to that business plan was the why, and the why of that business was just promote self-guided public land hunting and create advocates for that cause. And that's- well, I'm glad
1: you just said that because could if if again that again to the to the bigger discussion point here, do you feel like Randy Newberg has led to crowding on public lands? You are out there showing people public lands, showing them how to do it correctly, and now you've got everyone in their in their dog wanting to go hunt public land.
2: I, I, I'm sure we've had some impact. And if you were to read what a lot you know a lot of the critics they'd say it's, you know, all my fault. Uh, I wish I, I wish I had that much influence, but I suspect, yes, there are times and instances where we surely do. Um, but how how is it a you, bad thing? I don't think it's a bad thing. Here, here's what the what it illustrates to me is how much access we have lost in the 20 years that I've really been working on this public land issue.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Compared to what the demand for outdoor recreation is whether it's hunting whether it's fishing fishing is crowded hunting is crowded mountain biking is crowded camping is crowded all of it because we lose more access every year that's so.
1: interesting for you to say that i think you know i think we we tend to live in a bubble in which we've never really ventured out of the bubble to ask people like are the national parks crowded you know i'm sure the answer over covid would have been hell yes they are way crowded our mountain bikes trail crowded our camping sites crowded it'd be interesting a uh, little scientific endeavor to
2: figure that out but i, I i'm pretty positive as you said the answer's yes yeah everything is crowded and and as we lose millions of acres a year to development to you know housing to agriculture to whatever it is for a society that has, is you know, in my lifetime, if I live long enough in a country that's going to have 400 million people on a planet that's racing towards 8 billion people, we are putting demands on landscapes that are unrealistic. Mm-hmm. And then we have lost a ton of our private hunting access because of, at least here in Montana and other places in the West, you're, you're really not a true Wall Street billionaire unless in your portfolio you have a Montana ranch. You know, you you can't hardly go to the country club and and compare your portfolio if there's not, you know, a 30,000 acre Montana ranch or Wyoming ranch. Mm -hmm. And most of those lands used to be open to public hunting back in the traditional, you know, working landowner, as I call them. And they're closed now. So Mm -hmm. we have lost more hunting access than we've been able to make up. So yes, it is getting more crowded. But does that mean that we're going to just accept that and fight over a smaller pie? Or are we going to try to make the pie bigger? And in the business world, uh, those of your listeners who went through the business school programs, you know that one of the first things they talk about in business psychology is the human condition that we have abundance thinkers and scarcity thinkers. The scarcity thinker is the person who accepts the fatalistic attitude that the pie is out, we're on the race to zero and I got to fight to make all my efforts going to be there to make sure I get my piece of it, that my mm-hmm. piece doesn't get any smaller. Mm-hmm. And then you have the abundance thinker who says, you know what, if we make the pie bigger, if we put more elk on the mountain, more sheep on the mountain, more pheasants in the field, my pie doesn't, I don't need the same percentage of the pie. Mm-hmm. You're at, and so I look at the hunting world, and we're no different than the rest of our society. There's going to be some of us who are abundance thinkers, and some of us who are scarcity thinkers. Mm-hmm. And everything in my life, I've been an abundance thinker. And so I, I what do you think <laughs> about the this
1: uh, this whole issue of corner crossing? Because corner crossing is something mm-hmm. that could open up. It could almost red, redact the deficit of public land hunting that we've seen over the last 15
2: years yeah i and i wish it could and i and i hope it will um i, I you know I, if there's anything that it put me in the spotlight, it's when I hired a helicopter to fly one mile from one piece of BLM land into another piece of BLM land. I did it five years in a row because the piece of BLM land in question was up for a land exchange where the surrounding landowners had petitioned the BLM under the premise that, look, it never gets used. So for the cost of about six to $700 per person, if you split it three ways, we went in there and shot a lot of elk on that BLM ground. And uh, uh, it's still BLM ground, and people are still hunting it. Uh, so is
1: it legal to do that? Is yeah. that someone you can do that? You could chop her in and drop yourself yeah. on, on BLM then?
2: Yeah. There, there's some restrictions. You know, it's a motorized vehicle, so you got to land on a motorized trail or road. Okay. Uh, and the BLM allows it. The Forest Service does not allow it. Um, there's whole. I In the five years of doing it, I learned an awful lot about that stuff but the the point of all that being that there are places where these isolated parcels like you're talking about that can be accessed via corner crossing are phenomenal hunting and it would be great if we could find a solution to that you know i get a lot of heat because for years i've said that uh it's civil trespass and it is i've hired I don't know how many law firms this summer. I hired another law firm to look into a bunch of other ways around this corner crossing issue hmm. without committing civil trespass. And they're going to be on my podcast next month. Amazing. We, we have sorted kind of where the dead ends are that they think from a legal standpoint, but there's a lot of places that aren't necessarily dead ends. And uh, I've, you know in 30 years of being a CPA you get to be an expert witness enough you read a lot of tax law you realize that legal precedent unless it gets converted into law isn't a lot to stand on from from a legal standpoint so so these uh, guys
1: that have corner crossed in wyoming and they raised a ton of money for their legal fees and whatnot yep. what's can just give us the gist cuz i'm obviously not up to speed as much as you would be from a legal perspective if they win Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people have this idea that if they win, then it's done. Like, okay, now yeah. it's it's
2: all, but it's yeah. not, right? No, it's it's nowhere near done because, uh, you know, a legal case is only relevant to the jurisdiction of the court that it was cited in, and the attorneys I've hired, they've looked at the fact pattern in Wyoming, and they're convinced that the DA down there is going to drop that case. Maybe they won't. I don't know, but for it to become law.
1: Well, for those that aren't too familiar with when when you say that the DA is going to drop the case, what do you mean?
2: Uh, the 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 charges against the four hunters. It, it, there's so much risk to the landowner and other side. They could. The, the last thing you want is a bad ruling, right? But but it, hold on, hold on. So let's play this out. If they okay. drop the case. Yep. What's
1: going to stop a thousand hunters this fall in Wyoming doing the exact same thing?
2: Nothing. Nothing. In fact, I would say if they drop the case, a thousand hunters are going to do that in Wyoming this year. Absolutely. So I. Isn't that? Yeah. Exactly. You know, my approach to it has always been a little bit different. I hope these. Guys, prevail. I, I'd love to see them prevail. I'd love to see it go all the way as whatever the highest possible court would hear it because the higher the court level upon appeal, the after bigger appeal, the
1: jurisdiction,
2: right? The greater the jurisdiction, and the more likely uh, that it's going to be held up as precedent in other cases. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what is likely going to happen, and I've talked to three people very involved in the Wyoming legislative process. Uh, They're already crafting bills down there that say, "Okay, if the court does decide against us, we'll just change a lot. In the state uh, of Wyoming. Yeah. Well, in Montana, you know, we we had this same issue come up where we had a Republican legislator and a Democratic legislator come together and they sponsored a law in the 2013 legislature, unknown to hunters, that they were going to make corner crossing legal. So so. everyone calls us hunters and say, you better get to the Capitol and testify in support of this. So everybody's like, well, bipartisan, you know, a very conservative, landowner-friendly legislator. He's a co-sponsor. We go there and he voted, the Republican voted against his own bill and committee and killed it. Yeah. (laughs) So Did a bunch of rich landowners get onto him, you think? uh, I think he got taken to the woodshed. But anyhow... When that happened, the Montana legislature looked at this and said, "You know what the weak spot is in our defense is—we don't have a minimum damage for civil trespass." And it, we can—we don't want to spend all our time talking about this, but si- every attorney will tell you that under this doctrine called the odd coelum doctrine, that it goes back to common law way way back it says the landowner owns everything down to the depths of hell to the heavens above including the airspace so that's why under that principle that has been held in the u.s uh even going across swinging your foot over the corner technically quote unquote is civil trespass there's no damage but it's still civil trespass gotcha So in Montana, they said, well, we'll just make it a $1,500 minimum damage for civil trespass. Damn. So every time you do this, and it's it's not civil trespass, it's civil trespass while hunting. So Mm -hmm. if the kid runs across your yard to pick up his football, there's not going to be a $1,500 damage to him, but while in the act of hunting. So that bill made it through one committee almost to the other, and then they heard the governor would veto it. So it never made it. But right now in Montana, they're crafting that stuff, getting it ready for the 2023 legislative session. That's what we're going to get. We're going to get a reform of Montana's criminal trespass statute and mandatory minimums for civil trespass. Wow. They're not talking about bringing
1: corner crossing back up at all? No. No.
2: But the the reason I've hired attorneys on this issue since that whole thing I talked about 2013 and 14 is – there are a lot of other ways here to look at this and try to solve this problem. Um, and I'm not saying any of them will work out. Maybe they won't. But I I think there's some really interesting things out there about how title was transferred when the federal government gave land. There's issues related to easement by necessity. Uh, there's implied easements. The amount of time and effort that mm-hmm. I've spent uh, looking into this stuff is... Uh, I could have probably. And again
1: for what gain Randy like why are you putting all your effort into something like this
2: for the same reason that people are funding the gofundme account for those four hunters in Wyoming I I I struggle with the idea that somebody whether it's a private party or whether it's the public in general that there is property they own that they can't get access to hmm. I, it just it, it doesn't sit well with me and so I want the public to have access to the public lands. And I want to find legal ways to go about that. And one thing that's really helpful in the last 20 years is a lot of private landowners are suing each other. So they're they're two neighbors, right? Two big landowners, they're suing each other to say this ad coelum doctrine does not apply. Well, please keep fighting that way. Keep keep doing that because that would destroy the whole idea. That Mm -hmm. this is trespass. So Mm -hmm. it's. I don't know. I'm. I'm a patient guy, and so I'm willing to keep working at these things. And and I know some people probably don't have. They aren't looking at it the way Mm -hmm. I am. And I get that. I I how whatever approaches we can have to try solve these problems. I support them all.
1: Mm -hmm. Randy, you've been you've been in hunting in the hunting community in the hunting industry. Twenty years, thirty years. Mm. Yeah. You have a, a when you step back, you have a unique perspective on seeing how the hunting industry has changed. Yeah. What about the change? I, you know, I see things that I'm like, shit. I wish we didn't have that. I wish we didn't have that. I wish mm. we didn't have that. In your mind, <laughs> what's the thing that you might have like? You look at, at today versus when it was twenty years ago, and you're like, shit, that has gone. To a point mm. where I never knew it was going to go.
2: I, I, and this is just, I, I never want to use the term ethics because that implies someone's who they are at the core. And a lot of people say, oh, long range shooting is unethical or, you know, shooting. I like to use the word preference. The, yeah, right. These, personal these things, preference, exactly. personal opinion. Whenever somebody uses the term ethics, I instantly get my my antenna starts vibrating and I'm like, that person is talking about their personal preferences. And that's why I never use the word. I I, I know when I've started to say it before, I'm, I have to examine it and say, eh, come on, Randy, that's just your own personal preference. And that's why I'm even hesitant to answer the question the way I'm going to, because some will say, oh, you, you just don't like that you and you're right i but i also understand physics i understand that the further the distance the more the environmental conditions and the more the ability of the person releasing the arrow or pulling the trigger the more that's amplified and so no what one, you're saying
1: is you've seen over the years you've seen the distance in which animals are taken mm-hmm. increase to a point where you believe it's
2: in in your opinion unethical In my opinion, I don't think that we're being honest with ourselves that there there are a pot full of animals that are hit that are not recovered. There are a lot of instances where if we all agree that the way that we harvest an animal somewhat speaks to the collective ethos of hunting, having respect and appreciation for that animal... I think it's hard to argue against the fact that 1,200 yard shots at elk and someone's listening gonna say, well, I killed one at 1,200 yards. Yes, they probably did. But what we never hear about are the ones that got shot in the ass or the ones that got a broken jaw or the whatever. And I know that because I hunt to get as close as I can. And sometimes I can't just get can't get any closer. And I've hit some animals that it was messy. And that was at much closer ranges, mm-hmm. but something went wrong. I, I was distracted. I didn't do what I needed to do. And none of us are immune from that. So when you ask the question of, in my retrospect or in my rear view mirror of looking at this, I wish hunting was about getting closer rather than some, I mean, if you go to some of the shooting events I am, you'll see guys, you know, it's almost like they're their patches on their sleeve, you know, a thousand yard kill.
1: Do you think the distance has uh occurred because of the desire's the wrong word here, because of the peer pressure for when you go hunting to have to bring something home.
2: I I believe that's possibly it. I believe it's a function of some people they hunt, it's it is a bit of a scorekeeping system. You know, it's, I, I, it, let we got to be honest among ourselves. Everybody's got a different motivation for hunting. And I'm not saying mine is any better than anyone else's. So, but, in your
1: personal opinion, what's the number, Randy? And then I'm going to uh, poke you at that so, number.
2: I, uh, the number, you're, this is not going to be a number in distance. It's going to be a number where I'm 99% sure that animal's going to die. It's, it, it's a good because there there are conditions where i've passed shots like i passed a shot on a bison in utah in the henry mountains at 43 yards and everyone knew we were there we we're the only guys walking around with the camera crew behind a hunter and they were watching us from the other i mean there were a lot of people out there and i came to full draw i just did not have that feeling and i let the bison go the next day a, def, a different bison was at 43 yards, and I had that, this bison is dead feeling, and I released the arrow. Mm. Same distance to the yard. And so, one, I just I just didn't feel it. So and, what if
1: someone told you, though, Randy, like you just said, 1,200, I know I can kill that animal, and it's going to die.
2: right. And there are people who can, and I wish... Not for the sake of, of shooting animals at that distance. I wish I had their talent. I wish I had their skill set, their familiarity with every little detail. Because I go out to my range here in, in Montana. We have an amazing range outside of Bozeman. There are guys there who are unbelievable. I'm, I'll am i just say I envy their talent level. I wish I was that good, but physically I'm not. The amount of time I invest to my craft is not. so. I have to say, I'm, I'm going to take closer distance shots. And that's just a reality of, of how Mm -hmm. it is for me. I I admire those guys, but the ones that are the best long distance shot shooters are also the ones who say, I, you know, with animals, I just, I don't shoot over 400 yards. Too much can go wrong. You don't know Mm -hmm. how that bullet's going to perform at the point of impact, the wind, the weather, the, you know, so. I have a lot of respect for those guys, um, but I I see it in media enough. I I own a forum, I read it in other forums of you know people talking about it. Like uh, an example, we did a YouTube video with a guy. We took him; he won a sweepstakes, so we went to New Mexico, and he had a four hundred and thirty yard shot at a six point bull facing towards him. Very tough shooting situation. Would have been laying downhill. Not not at all a good shot. The number of people who criticized this person for saying I, that's not a shot i'm I'm taking I want him to come and bed underneath us because if he would have bedded underneath us it would have been a hundred and eighty yard shot mm-hmm. the number of people who commented and criticized him for selecting what he felt was the best shot was disappointing and it, you know oh well if you can't shoot six hundred yards what do you do in elk hunting? Mm-hmm. it's not that every hunter gets to define what they want out of the hunt and i that that's why you know you you see right now we're we're going through this why do you think why do you you
1: i've got my own thoughts here but this isn't a podcast about me um yeah it is no (laughs) it's not why do you think this innate competitive jealousy maybe that's the maybe answered your answer for you but what is it about why is it this this innate thing about hunters to just like ah that's wrong ah that's wrong we hate you we hate you you have to do this you have to do
2: that Uh, i i've been seeking an answer to that ever since i i've realized that that dynamic exists and i i really don't have an answer robbie i i don't know all i can say is that like I said earlier, we're a cross-section of our greater society. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to behave any differently than society in general. And we see that everywhere in our society. You know, mm-hmm. People have a tendency to criticize that which either they don't do or that which they can't do, or whatever it might be, and that's why I, you know, <laughs> I didn't know you were going to ask me that question. If you would have sent me a list of things I'd like, <laughs> why to that would have been not fun. I would have said, "Please, let's not go down that hole." I, but again, back to my point, I think it's a worthwhile decision For sure. because there's no true answer, and once you pull that trigger. You're the one accountable. Mm-hmm. You're the one responsible. And mm-hmm. I I realized how lucky I was. I believe I was 46. So I'd been hunting 34 years before I finally hit an animal that I didn't recover. It was a black bear in Alaska. Wow. And I was in the prone position, 300 wind mag, 285 yards. I thought that thing was dead. Spent a whole day following it. Never did find it. And that's when it struck me how difficult it is to be at your absolute best every time you release an arrow or pull a trigger. Mm-hmm. And it it was, I, I'll be honest, I, I didn't realize how lucky I had been up until that point. Mm-hmm. And it, it caused me to question a lot about myself. And mm-hmm. I showed it on the, uh, <laughs> the network wasn't that happy about me showing it, but Why my point, would the
1: network not be happy with you showing stuff like that? That's the reality of hunting. Hunting yeah. is defined by chase and pursuit and has failure built into its definition.
2: Right. I, I have no idea, Robbie, but my first year, season one of On Your Own Adventures, my buddy Scott Jones, very accomplished hunter. He hunts with his own longbow. And so we're hunting mule deer in Nevada, and Scott doesn't fill his tag. And I send it to the network. And they say, well, they email me back. They're like, you don't want to air this. You don't have, a, you didn't kill anything. I'm like, so, but <laughs> who cares? They're like, well, that's, you know, we we don't air those. I'm like, Ridiculous. well, I'm the one who pay, I, I'm writing you the check. And my contract says, as long as it meets certain criteria, certain formats, certain commercial breaks, you have to air it. So they sent me the kind of cover your ass email of, well, we recommend you don't do it, but you're right. We have to air it. So they aired it. It was one of our best viewed episodes ever Heck yes of, of the whole season. And I emailed them and said, you know, you guys should be happy because next year I might only have one episode where I kill something <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but that's, that, that's part of why I got into this is that that's an example of the way I think the story of hunting had been somewhat twisted or perverted to Mm -hmm. not reflect reality. Mm -hmm. So when I shot and hit that bear and I didn't recover it, that is not the position I wanted to find myself in. Mm. But I know I wasn't the only person who's ever been in that position. And I wanted to show the honesty of it. Right. It just, you know, I screwed up. There's, there's no, if, if I hadn't screwed up, that bear would have been dead. That's, The bullet performs the way it performs, the rifle, the scope, everything else, it's operator error. Yeah, yeah. And I got to take accountability for that. And if I'm not willing to take the responsibility and accountability, then I should find a different job. Well, you do have a different job. (laughs) True. I I have one that pays my bills. (laughs) Thank goodness.
1: No, my theory to the whole competitiveness is um, that somewhere deep inside of us, we still have this DNA instinct. For when we were back in, you know, caveman days and that we, we drug this thing back to the fire and all yeah. the guys looked at me and said, well, you're going to get all the women tonight and you fed <laughs> the, the family tonight and I feel really yeah. bad. And so I'm jealous because of you, mm-hmm. the only difference, and, and somebody's pointed this out to me, which is quite, it was quite astute of them is that the next day, those other hunters probably hunted a hundred times harder first is getting on social media and sitting back on a couch and saying whatever they wanted to say,
2: yeah, but you you look at that yeah that's a that's really I think a valuable observation or analogy that you use robbie uh the cultures of hunting across the the planet have had a storytelling aspect to it. you go to the you know to the, wherever you wanna go, you find caves, you find petroglyphs, you find whatever it is. You look at the indigenous people of the United States or of North America, how colorful their art was mm-hmm. about hunting. So we, we are storytellers today as much as they were however many thousands of years ago. But today we have more powerful tools. So it's res- our responsibility to use those tools of storytelling in the most positive manner we possibly can. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Randy, um just before we uh, end this, I like to, whenever we have these sort of free floating discussions, I like to always just give you the opportunity. Is there anything on your heart that uh, you feel like you, you haven't said?
2: <laughs> oh, Robbie, we get we got to do this more often if I'm going to get it all uh, all out of my heart. Uh, no, I I just want people to understand that we are truly blessed in the United States, and and we may not all get along, we may not all agree, but hunting is uh, it adds so much to our culture of who we are as a country, who we are as people, that we owe it upon all of ourselves to make sure that there's a brighter future for hunting. And as much, as quick as I say that, there's going to be other people who have a different view of how to do that or what that future should look like. And, you know, you had Matt Ranella on your podcast and I I am so thankful that Matt is out pushing the message he is, even though I may disagree with parts of it. I want people like Matt to keep doing it. I 100%. want everybody to keep doing what they can to make hunting in the way that they see it the way that they were brought to hunting the way hunting weaves through their soul through their fabric do what you can do it in the way that makes you feel like you're you're making it positive because if we just sit back and we complain about the status quo if we just get on facebook and you know bitch and moan about something hunting will not exist at some point in time mm-hmm. and if, if that's what ends up happening, my life of what I feel has been other than my family, the most important things in my life, if hunting does not have a bright future, I completely fail. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just, that's, that's what drives me. I, I, I you know, like I said earlier, I, I do this because I'm in a position where I can, not for any other reason. Mm-hmm. and. Maybe, maybe I'll be judged. i will be like that guy. Man, what a weirdo! Man, he's off his rock. Uh, but I'll, uh, I'll at least have done it because I, I think I was trying my best. And like you, like me, like everybody, you know, mm-hmm. you make some mistakes. But mm-hmm. you know, it's not the making the mistake that might be the problem. It's have you learned from it? Have you tried to do better? Have and you grown? Yeah. So mm-hmm. I. Well said. I looked, well said. You're exactly, I look forward uh, to sharing a, sharing a camp with you someday, though. Yes, sir. When are so. you getting to get Montana?
1: Well, I had a, a, a Wyoming antelope tag and a Montana antelope tag, and I didn't fill either of them because I never went. Oh, bummer. It's okay. Huh. We'll start again. I was seven <laughs> years <laughs> preference points in Wyoming and three oh, in Montana. It's okay. It's okay. Oh, that's... Um,
2: Oh, man. It's I'm, called
1: balance, right? I don't have it, much balance. I fight for hunting every single day, and wow. I hunted a total of three days in 2021.
2: Wow. wow. I appreciate what you do, Robbie. I mean that sincerely. When when you bumped into me at TAC and I heard that voice, I'm like, I I should know this person. And uh, I just listened to a couple of your episodes. I'm like, please keep doing what you do. Okay. I, I And I mean that in all sincerity. You bring the... The fierce determination to push this discussion to places that the bigger media machines don't want to have those discussions, and we have to have them. You can't ignore it and pretend that these topics and these points don't exist. And and you're doing a hell of a job forcing us to think about it. So please, thank you, my man. That's uh, that's humbling coming from you. So we'll have to do it again. Okay. Um, you say when and where. I'll try to be there. Yes, sir. Thanks, Robbie.